Good morning. Um, Josh, good job. Cello player, exceptional. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm happy to be up here and speak. It's been, it's been over a year since I've, I've preached, and to be perfectly honest, I'm quite nervous. Um, but thank you for the year of sabbatical. So I just rolled back on as an elder maybe two weeks ago. And when I rolled off about a year ago, I, my heart was tired. It wasn't angry or mad or frustrated, but it was weary. And I'm always reminded of this Piper sermon about Charles Spurgeon, ironically. He was teaching at a pastor's conference and Piper quotes Charles Spurgeon when he says, Spurgeon said, referring to elders, ours is more than mental work. It is heart work, the labor of our inmost soul. Piper goes on to say, everyone faces adversity and must find ways to persevere through oppressing moments of life. Everyone must get up and make breakfast and wash clothes and go to work and pay bills and discipline children and generally keep life going when the heart is breaking. But it's different with elders. Not totally different, Piper says, but different. The heart is the instrument of their work. So when our heart is breaking, we must labor with a broken instrument. And so it was good. It was good to be off for a year. It was good to just come to church and do things like just sing and just listen to a sermon. And I felt it doing its work all year. So when it was time to roll back on, my heart felt much less weary. So thank you. In Sunday school um, this semester, we have been covering, uh, the Sunday school class I'm teaching, we've been covering these one another passages. And so it is very front of brain for me at the moment. I think about it and study for it all week. And, and so this morning, you're going to get kind of the overflow of what I've been studying and thinking about personally. Uh, for some of you, the material might seem recent. And that's okay. Because I know that 50% of verbal communication is forgotten by the end of the speech or whatever. And then within a week, 10%. There's only 10% retained. So if most of you look totally surprised, as if this is the very first time you've heard it, it will not hurt my feelings. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, I love you. I do. I ask that you would help me this morning. Pray that you would give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I ask that my words would not be mine that they would be yours. That the Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear and soft hearts. Oh God, please, please speak through this. Please speak through your word. And may the Holy Spirit essentially go before me and do a work on people's hearts. 
including my own. May these words not fall to the floor, but be heard. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So a lot of you have heard me go through this before, but if I were to say, like, what was the message of Jesus? What do we read over and over again in the Gospels? I think it's something that we don't hear very often, actually, in church. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In Mark 4, he says, What can we compare the kingdom of God to? In Mark 9, he says, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God than with one eye. Or with one eye. In Mark 10, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In Luke 4, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. In Luke 8, after Jesus started his ministry, it says, After this, Jesus traveled from town to town in one village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. In Luke alone, in Luke alone, the phrase, the kingdom of God, is mentioned in chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 7, twice in 8, five times in chapter 9, twice in 10, 11, four times in 13, Chapter 14, 16, 17, five times in 18, 19, 21, 22, 23, and 24, which is the last chapter of the book. And then in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, it says, He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs. Let me start over. Acts chapter 1, he says, He presented himself alive to them in speaking about the kingdom of God. Simply, if you were going to say, what was Jesus' message all about? It was this phrase. It was the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' message. And we talk about it actually very little, unless you're in my Sunday school class, and then you've heard it three times already. And I think it's a real tragedy in North America and around the world that people have substituted this good news about the kingdom with something like this. Here are the minimum entry requirements to get into heaven. As if Jesus' only purpose was to die on a cross to forgive our sins. Now, that was a big, great purpose, and that is true. But I think if you're not careful, you just kind of think that he maybe just bided his time until he got to the cross. And that is not true. Jesus' purpose in life was indeed to die on the cross, But his consistent message as he lived was that the kingdom of God was now available to everyone. And you, as a North American non-Jew, should be good news for you. That the kingdom of God was available to everyone. And his life was to model what that looked like. What did it look like to live in the kingdom? His life modeled that out. What was his command? Seek first the kingdom. So what is it? What is the kingdom of God? It's the easiest definition, and most simply, you, is it, you can find in his prayer. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done. The kingdom is just the realm where everything comes, where everything that takes place comes with God's approval. What does it look like to live in the kingdom? Well, it does not look like the world. Actually, from the outside looking in, it probably looks upside down. And for all the kids that come to my office and ask, why is your world upside down? Like, I have a framed world. That is why. Because from the outside looking in, it looks backwards and upside down. Jesus kept saying things like, the greatest among you will be the least. That the last is first. That the poor are rich. Therefore, anytime as a believer, as someone that's redeemed, anytime you do something that is opposite to the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of God is breaking through. Anytime you love someone that's difficult, the kingdom of God is coming to earth. Anytime you wring yourself out for the gospel by being faithful to the nursery, the kingdom of God is breaking through. Anytime you hold your temper for the sake of his name, anytime you work hard at your job for the glory of Jesus, anytime you love your wife, more than your job. Anytime you treat someone like a big deal when they can't help your career or help you at all, help your status, the kingdom of God is breaking through. Life in the kingdom is both incredibly complex. We could talk about it for the rest of our lives and studying, study it. And never exhaust it. But it's also really simple. Even children can understand. We get such a cool glimpse into the unity of God and the unity of Scripture when we look at this. Let me, let me explain. When we look at Deuteronomy, what is the great commandment? It's to love your God with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul. And then in Leviticus it says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then when we get to Matthew, kind of the end of Jesus' time, the Pharisees are just in, I mean, it's fever pitch at this point. They have to catch him. They hate him. They need him to die. And in an attempt to catch him, they try to make him sum up the Old Testament in some way to find him in falsehood, and they just can't. But in one, of those, in one of those moments where they tried, they ask him, so, what is the greatest commandment? In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, he said to them, you shall love your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, and all the prophets. Jesus sums up the Old Testament by simply saying, the kingdom of God looks like 
Loving God with all of your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. Then uniquely, in the book of John, we had a glimpse into the last moments of Jesus' ministry prior to the crucifixion. Just a glimpse into something the other Gospels don't have. (laughs) And it's so cool to see the unity. So if you told me today was the last day I was going to have with my family, our conversation over lunch is going to be as deep as possible. I want to tell Eli how much I love him. I'm going to tell Joe how much I love him, and I'm going to tell Sheila how much I love her, and then I'm going to tell them the things that I want them to remember. And so Jesus is finishing dinner, his last dinner, with the disciples. You get this unique glimpse into what comes to front of his brain, what floats to the top. I'll never forget when my grandmother was passing away, she had super advanced dementia, had no idea who I was, but what floated to the top of her brain was so cool. She like, called me over and liked to tell me a secret. She said, your grandfather is the best man I've ever known. And I thought, oh, that's great. That's what popped in her brain. What popped in Jesus' brain at the end of his life, the last moments of his ministry before the cross, is super cool. In chapter 13, what do we see? We see the king of kings, the creator of the world, showing that in this kingdom, kings are humble and kings wash feet. At the end of the chapter, he says in this kingdom, if you live in this kingdom, people will know you're in this kingdom by how you love each other. And then in chapter 14, thankfully, because it's our experience as well, in chapter 14, he says, hey, I'm going away. And it's going to get hard. It's going to be hard. But I'm going to send you a helper. And then in chapter 15, they take a walk. And as they're walking to the spot to pray, it's as if they're walking to a vineyard. And he goes in this famous discourse about, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me. Or, love God with all of your heart. And then in chapter 16, he says again, and that's going to be hard too, but I'll send you a helper. And then in chapter 17, he prays for them. So when you look at it, to sum up the last of Jesus' life on earth, he models the kingdom that kings wash feet in this kingdom. And then he tells his followers, love God with all of your heart. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And love each other. And it's going to be hard. But I'll help you. Because I'll send you a helper. And has that not been our experience? It is hard to abide in Christ. And it's hard to love each other. If you have followed Christ for very long, you know how hard it is to abide. Every February you get to Leviticus after starting over in Genesis in January and you fizzle out. It's hard. 
But that's a different sermon. Today, we recognize how important and difficult it is to love each other. Let me read some verses. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. And then he really, the knockout punch is this. Just as I've loved you. Oh my goodness. He was slaughtered for your joy. He laid down his life. Oh, that's a high calling. And then he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In John 15, it says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, again, he says, these things I command you so that you'll love one another. In Romans 12, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. In Romans 13, he says, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For indeed, that is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, do it more. First Peter, Peter says, Having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another, another earnestly from a pure heart. First Peter again, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. First John, for this message we have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. First John's a big one. Chapter 3, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. First John 4, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And then second John, and I ask you, dear lady, not as though I was writing you a new commandment, but one we've heard from the beginning, that we love, you guessed it, one another. It doesn't sound like a suggestion. Or an option. This is hard, but because I love you. If you don't know this, you don't know Jesus. Maybe the most straightforward verse is from the disciple John. In 1 John 3.14, he says, We know we have passed out of death and into life. We know we are not in death. We know we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's the verse. Now, the irony and maybe the grace for you is, look who just said that. It's John, as an old man, writing to the churches. This is the same guy that in Luke chapter 9 has a horrible chapter 
just not flattering at all to this guy. In chapter 9, we see in three succeeding paragraphs, the first paragraph, he gets into an argument with the other disciples about who's going to be the greatest. Arguing, I want to be a big deal, and I'm a bigger deal than you. And then, then, this is not a joke, and then in the next paragraph, he starts telling Jesus, hey, we saw somebody casting out a demon, and we told him to stop because they're not one of us. Like, we're in the inner circle, and they aren't. So we told them, this is our job, not theirs. He's exclusive. And then really the one that is just, I don't think our brains even capture it when we say it. They go to a Samaritan village, and they don't accept them. And John pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, you want to slaughter all the women and children and call down fire? Let's do that. Seriously, let's murder a bunch of people because they didn't accept us. That's the guy writing, you know how you're saved? You know how you've passed from death to life? If you're known by love. What happened? What happened to John? Simply, he spent his life following Jesus. We get John, as a teenager probably, wanting to call fire down. And then we get a very unique picture also. We get John as an old man. And what does a life look like after he followed Jesus for decades and decades? It looks like this. You know how you've passed from death to life? You love each other. That's what abiding does. Look at me. That's actually in my notes. It says, look at me, look at me. The most drastic difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of earth is found here. In this kingdom of the redeemed, these people love each other. And it's hard. Why? Why is it hard? Because of this. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. The enemy does not want you to abide in Christ, and he does not want you to love each other. And it is an all-out war to prevent you from doing those two things. The enemy does not want you to abide. In verse 11, right before the verse I just read, Paul is describing the enemy, and he refers to the schemes of the devil. And again, incredibly complex, but simply to thwart and bankrupt these two markers of the Christian life, abiding and loving each other, is the goal. It's all at war on both. And perhaps to me, the most ironic means of deceitfulness in this area is how the schemes of the enemy uses one against the other. Oh, you don't think so? 
Have you seen how mean and ugly and unloving Christians can be to each other? By a misplaced zeal for truth? Oh, you will. Election season's coming. And then ironically, have you watched people walk away from the living God because of empathy for the marginalized and oppressed? Of course you have. As if Jesus wasn't hated because he ate with sinners. However, don't believe the lie. The two are not separated. To love God means you love people. And loving people should be the fruit of loving God. The two are inexplicable. I can't say the word, but I wrote it right. The two are absolutely linked and tied together. Oh, they should never be disconnected. So church, love each other. All the other one another passages, be kind, honor, care for, show hospitality, have fellowship, live in harmony, forgive, speak truth, stir up good work, do good, be humble, bear with one another. All of those fall under this umbrella to love each other, to love one another. So let me close with this. It's a long closing. Don't get your hopes up. <laughs> I'm teaching the one another class. And so I planned, for 11, I planned for 12 weeks. So I did not write this sermon for this morning. I planned for 12 weeks. And then because of some scheduling, I can't remember, but it made sense why we did it. We, we, Bobby, this may come as a surprise to you. We're shortening it to 11 weeks. Sorry. Um, and so my last week, I was going to talk about all these one another's for 11 weeks. Love one another, have fellowship with one another, be united to one another. Garrett taught this morning, encourage one another. And then I was going to talk about how we love each all under this umbrella of loving each other. I was going to talk about it for 11 weeks. And then on week 12, this was my lesson. I was going to end it with what I believe will bankrupt the whole of it. And I just named that week simply... One word, cancer. And it's a verse out of Galatians chapter 5. And Paul says, let us not envy one another. Envy. I asked Joe on the way to church, do you know what that means? And he said, no. So I thought I better write out the definition. So I did in pencil here. The desire to have a quality possession or other desirable attribute belonging to someone else. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not envy one another. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy is listed in the Gospel of Mark, and it's listed with sensuality. I found that very interesting. 
as if it's almost seductive. In Romans, it's listed with murder, as if it's dark. In Galatians, it's listed again, and it's in the context of drunkenness and orgies, as if it's akin to like a primal, carnal, animal desire. In 1 Timothy, it's leaked with evil suspicions, as if it assumes the worst. In Titus, Paul refers to its role in leading him astray. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Do you see how it's like passions, pleasures, malice, envy, hate, like how they seem to like In 1 Peter, he, Peter tells us to put it away. Which again, the grace there from Peter is this is the same guy at the end of his life. Jesus says, oh, by the way, you're going to die being crucified upside down. And Peter looks at John and is like, but what about him? And Jesus says, what does it matter about John? You obey me. Peter knows envy. And lastly, in 1 Corinthians, Paul famously states that love does not envy. The two are not linked. Paul tells us in Philippians that contentment is the work, is impossible, and is the work of the Holy Spirit. Envy is the opposite. Envy is the discontentment you have by looking at others. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Koheleth, or Solomon, however you want, wherever you land there, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the teacher says, Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. And this was vanity and striving after the wind. Keeping up with the Joneses is not new to, first, to 21st century America. It is the cancer that rots our bones. It is the thief of joy. The comparison that robs and steals and destroys the ability to be happy and happy for others. Does this sound harsh? I'm sorry if it does, but I'm not sorry. Because I know I didn't write the sermon for one individual face. Everyone in this room struggles with it. There is an all-out war to prevent you from loving your neighbor. An all-out war. And he would love to do it, you know, kill that because you got, you know, went on a life of prostitutes and cocaine. <laughs> but that's probably not your story. Your story is probably 
that you felt alone when another kid at school got an award and yours didn't? Or you felt sad when you saw some of your friends go on vacation together? Or another guy got a promotion? Or that girl sings beautifully and you can't sing at all? And let me say this. Being sad is not a sin. It's not wrong. It's the seed that's planted in your sadness. It's the seed that's planted in your sadness that when it flowers, it grows up and it starts whispering in your ear, pull away, isolate yourself. It's better to go it alone. It's easier and it doesn't hurt as bad. And its full-flowered self is self-protection. Now again, preaching this to a mirror, let me kindly remind you that isolation, aloneness, keeping people at arm's length, is not the work of the Holy Spirit. In stark contrast, well, before that, it's not the work of the Holy Spirit. Trust me, remember, in John 10, the wolf, the enemy, the devil, the schemer, he scatters sheep to make them alone. Starkly opposite. The Holy Spirit produces togetherness, communal, close. Ah, and it's a war. I know. Oh, I know. The enemy pulling up a chair, whispering in your ear, you're unloved. Encouraging you to pull away, isolate, and self-protect. It's cancer. Kill it. I am just now of the age where in the last two months, two of my friends that are my age have been diagnosed with cancer. And it is an all-out war to eradicate it. Oh, how I wish we as a church would do the same with this. An all-out war to kill it. But how? You might as well say levitate. You can't. But he can. What is the cure for it? Well, I don't know. To be perfectly honest, I don't know this. If I did, I'd write a book and make millions of dollars. But I do know this. I do think in two ways. I think spiritually that a life abiding in Christ is a life that you just continually lose more and more of yourself. Man, his call is come and die. His call is pick up the cross, follow me. And that there's joy there. 
And self-protection is simply self. And so I have to think that a partial cure, not a partial, or maybe the only cure, the only hope, is the helper that he promises you. That continually takes more and more away of you and replaces you with him. And then secondly, and Josh, if you would like to come up and And then secondly, I think that there is an aspect of being disciplined and practical. Let me see if this makes sense. If I only, like the weather and the stars and the sky, there is some, like one time I walked up on Dave Otto and Rob Hyde bawling their faces off at the top of a mountain, just sobbing like two little girls. Because it was such a grand, like we like rounded this corner and you could just see the cascades of mountains and they're both just overwhelmed with the greatness of God. That's really cool. You walk out and you see the stars, it stirs my affections. But if all you had was the weather, you would assume that he is powerful and quite harsh and quite mean. You look at tsunamis and your idea of who the creator of the world is not the truth when you only look at that. The same thing goes with loving people. He gave us the Bible to tell him what God is like. So when we see a tsunami, we don't jump to the conclusion that he is mean or harsh or because we know from scriptures that the full representation of who he is is in Jesus. In loving people, it's the same. If you only, if you only follow, not necessarily the, not the truth, but just what you're seeing, you're going to come to some real rotten conclusions. So I work with a ton of my friends, right? I actually work with my very best friends. And a couple of years ago, at the same time, which is very uncommon, Sam and Weston and Rob all left early. And so at like 4.30, I walk down to their office, and very strangely, they're, they're all three are gone. And somehow, in my head, I have convinced myself that the three of them left to go hang out together and didn't invite me. So much so to the conclusion that I am overwhelmed with sadness. And I leave early and take a different route home just so I could see if their trucks were all together in a parking lot of a place that we commonly go. Because I had already convinced myself they left, they didn't want me to come, they don't like me, they're all hanging out. Why would they not invite me? And they weren't there and all three had a different appointment somewhere else. But I'm driving home in deep sadness because I followed my assumption to conclusion that my assumption was just wrong. I would say that most of the time your feelings of being unloved are just wrong. 
Piper says, you want to play? I might get some background music. I'll read a Piper quote. Piper says, my feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. When that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I do not bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather, I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so they're in sync with your truth. So two very practical ways to kill falsehood in your life. Ask yourself, is this feeling I'm feeling? Is that the feeling the Holy Spirit produces? Does he want me to think and dwell on this thing that makes me want to be distant and isolate and self-protect? I think most of the time you get to the place of no. And then secondly, and I'm fortunate in this regard to be surrounded by guys like this. Don't surround yourself with yes men. Have people in your life that say, that's not true, man. That's not true. And then believe them. His call is to love me with all of your heart and love your neighbor. And don't be surprised when it is just an all-out war on both. But I think simply it starts with this. How do you kill cancer? It's with the gospel. So look at me. You are loved. You are loved. You are unbelievably loved by Christ. And that, that is the seed that when it flowers, produces good fruit. Believe it. He loves you more than you know, more than you possibly could comprehend. He loves you, legitimately. He loves you. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Let us believe it. Let it sink in. Let it flower. I thank you 
for who you are, for the gospel, that you have saved us. Help us as a church to love each other. In Jesus' name.